This is NBR's People in Business, a compilation of this week's top stories about leading New Zealand entrepreneurs and business people over on nbr.co.nz. Visit our website and sign up for full access to this and other great video content featuring the best in business. Acquiescing to every developer with dollar signs in their eyes will not address access to housing, writes Maria Slade in this week's Shoeshine. But surely building more houses is what we need. <laughs> well, we do need more houses, Dita. This is this is true. This is fair to say. However, Auckland Council has really thrown the cat among the pigeons with its um, proposed future development strategy, which it's uh, just come out with, and it's currently in the four-week consultation period. And it's really got the backup of the housing sector, because what it's proposing effectively is a cap on greenfields expansion. There's a certain amount of land that's already earmarked for greenfields but they don't want to go any further than that and in fact what, want to dial back a bit of it uh, and they're saying there is enough capacity within the existing urban areas to uh, meet Auckland's housing needs and they haven't got endless dollars to spend on infrastructure building you know, new sub- suburbs out on the outskirts of the city so they need to put their dollar where it's best um, used basically basically, and um, intensify the city more. So are developers able to just build wherever they like at the moment without any infrastructure around it? How does that work? Well, there's quite an interesting comment in the draft uh, document, which is that uh, in the period of over the last few years where they have earmarked a a chunk of land for urban um, expansion, there's been something like 10 private plan changes, which is a mechanism that's available to people under the RMA, which allows them to apply for a plan change without having to wait for a district plan change or, or indeed without having to apply for a resource consent. It's another route. And so 10 or so of these have got through and there's a whole chunk of them in the pipeline. And what Auckland Council is saying is the tail's starting to wag the dog. You fellas are off developing all these subdivisions and we haven't got a bottomless pit of money to spend on the infrastructure. We have a plan that we want to try and follow where we think the money's best spent and where we think the growth is going to happen. But we're having to react to all these different plans. And so my reading of it is this is the council trying to sort of pull back the reins and get control of the development process in a manner that suits their own aims. A lot of those developers do greenfields and infill building so why do they like greenfields so much? Well, they make money out of it. That's where oh, they yeah. make. <laughs> that's where they make their money. And arguably, it's easier to do greenfields developments because you can do a chunk of houses at once. Uh, so you, are, you know, making the most of your own resources. And often with infill housing, you know, I, I spoke to Paul Bull, who's chief executive of Signature Homes, who's a bit of a spokesperson for this uh, future Auckland group that's lobbying against the plan. He says, look, invariably, when you do an infill development, there are problems with the you know, connecting to the existing infrastructure, costs rise, etc. It's it's always got its difficulties. What about the argument that it'll leave us short of sites for housing if we don't allow more of these kind of developments? Well, Auckland Council is arguing there's enough. They they have allocated a certain amount of land under the future Auckland uh, category. Uh, about a third of that is already live, as they call it, so it's being developed. Places like Millwater and Milldale up near um, Silverdale. Uh, and the rest of it they're proposing to release gradually over the next 30 years. Some bits of it they want to reconsider and take out and there are certain chunks that they want to remove altogether because they're too flood prone and since the wild weather that we had in the summer, you know, that seems like a very sensible move. But yeah, they're not removing it altogether, they're saying it is there and and also 80% of the development we've seen in the last five years has been infill housing anyway so they're saying there's enough capacity there, don't panic fellas, mm, yeah. we're we're meeting our requirements under the uh, plans that the government have put to us. So, yeah, they're arguing there's enough. Is there any suggestion that politics can override uh, what Auckland Council is doing? <laughs> well, uh, we, we sort of got uh, policy whiplash at the moment because, of course, we had the um, Enabling Housing Supply Act, the bipartisan, controversial bipartisan legislation, which National is now dialing back from and saying they won't, uh, you know, they won't support it if they, uh, the government, next time round, and they're saying it's all about the greenfields. Yep. So it's there's a lot of flip flopping in Central Wellington, and, and I'm arguing that I actually kind of admire Auckland Council for sticking to its guns and putting a line in the sand and saying look, we need to prioritise our spend and uh, put the infrastructure in where we think the growth is going to happen. That will be quite a unique view in NBR. (laughs) Maria, thank you very much. Thank you. 
KPMG's latest snapshot of the banking sector shows net profit falling 13% to $1.54 billion in the March quarter, with provisions for bad debts increasing as mortgage holders fall behind in payments. With us now is KPMG's banking head and partner John Kensington. So John, this overall fall in net profit, how significant is that? I think it could be the beginning of, a, of an indicator of just how much impact inflation and rising interest rates has had. People refer to that, that as the cost of living. Because I think what we're seeing for the first time is the banking sector profits fall. That's been driven by a key factor that you mentioned, an increase in provisioning. That will be coming about because banks are starting to see more people get a little late in their payments and some people perhaps go that step further and even default. But also in this quarter that is that is worthy of note is that the bank margins sort of held and, and, and didn't improve or increase, but new lending fell off 28% compared to the previous quarter or 26% compared to the same quarter last year. So it's showing a little bit of a slowing. So yeah, within that data, though, owner-occupier lending was down about 32%, first-time buyers nearly 10%. What does that tell you about what banks are doing right now? I think what it tells me is both banks and consumers are being careful. They're making sure they've got the deposit. They're making sure they can afford it. That probably means that for a, 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 a consumer who has a house and wants to, to move up or, or a new buyer, they're probably setting themselves slightly higher targets before they go to the bank. And I'm suspecting the bank's probably enforcing a tighter uh, review of, of who they lend to and probably lending, well, they are lending a little bit more and as a result saying no a little bit more often. You've said the June quarter will be a critical turning point. Why is that? I think what happens from here, um, uh, John, as all these things have gone up, um, the economy has slowed down. And then the, and the, the reason it'll be critical is has, it, has enough been done by the Reserve Bank and all their moves that it has slowed the economy down enough that it gently stops uh, and then starts to maybe pick up again? Or have they not done enough and it runs on um, and they need to do more by raising interest rates even further, or have they done too much and plunged the economy into the recession that they talked about, but maybe a more severe recession. So it, re it really is a turning point where to from here have the Reserve Bank's actions been enough, too much, or not enough. It, it's probably going to be the distinctive quarter because this quarter you can just see some slowing down starting to occur. Okay, so you're wanting to see maybe two or three quarters of a downturn before you can make an assessment of where we're heading. A little, a little bit of that, uh, John, but, but also this is some beginning of a change, a very early showing of a new trend. It's to give that trend a little bit more time to, to show through. In the background, we've got the Commerce Commission now looking at competition within the banking sector. You're waiting on the August preliminary issues paper. What are you looking out for there? Look, that is a million-dollar question. Uh, uh, really what I'm looking for is some answers to a question that has been around for a long time. Nearly every quarter that we do, the, the FIPS, someone asks me, should there be a banking inquiry? And, and I think... There probably does need to be one, if for no other reason than to work out whether or not the banks are treating customers fairly, whether or not the system is fair, so that we can, I guess, get that question answered and let people at both ends of the spectrum see what the answer is. Um, I think it's important too that, that it's uh, it's at the moment it's 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 limited to sort of retail customer type. Um, interactions um, but I think it's important too that it's wide-ranging and it's balanced and it looks at the ho whole sort of banking sector as it applies to those customers in an in, in holistic manner. Well it all comes down to trust, competition and profits doesn't it? I think there's probably another couple of things in there like um, the customer service and, and, we, and where the customers are happy with the service they're getting. I think probably um, when you lay that lens across it and their involvement and interaction with the rest of society across those sort of three things you mentioned and those two I mentioned, those are the critical factors. Mm. Overall, how is the health of the banking sector right now? 
Look, I think it is still very strong. Uh, these banks are well capitalized. They're profitable. They've spent a period of time getting their balance sheets and the balance sheets of a lot of their customers into a good position for this downturn that appears to now be slowly happening. But it's always more difficult to navigate a downturn than it is an, an upturn in the economy. So the banks are in a good position, but going into possibly a more challenging time going forward. John Kensington, thanks for your time. Humblebee Bio is on a mission to create a biodegradable alternative to plastics by synthesising the biology of bees. Well, one bee in particular, the Australian mask bee. It doesn't make honey, but it makes a nesting material for laying larvae in, which has many plastic-like properties. And the founder of Humblebee Bio is Veronica Stevenson, and she joins me now. How did you come across the bee? Well, see... um... My mother was a a librarian and I um, kind of cataloging, researching databases was my, um, you know, my information framework system from a really, really early age. I mean, we had in our, in our house, every room had a genre. Um, And so you would, you know, reference books were brought out at at dinner for kind of uh, fact correction and, um, and that sort of thing. So that was, um, I, I used that to literally just dig into the literature and find what I could about things that existed in nature that had these performance properties. And so I came across this um, uh, entomology paper about a, um, a, a family of bees that make a nest material that had really high performance hydrophobic capabilities. And that was one of the key properties um, for um, this class of chemicals that is that was being um, regulated out and has and, you know, now been really widely shown to cause a lot of damage um, with regard to um, cancer and, and hormone disruption. And that was very exciting. And so I was like, okay, well, I need to get my hands on some of this material because the the literature that I had read, and there was a body of literature on, on this nest material, but it was much more grounded in um, entomology and its function um, as it related to the life cycle of that bee rather than like its performance capabilities as an industrial product. So um, I, it took me about a year and I cold called everyone I could um, who knew about uh, these, these bees to try and convince them to help me find some. And because they're solitary bees, they can't be farmed. They can't be just like, you can't just like go out to the nearest bee place and, and, and find them. So it was a number of years before we were able to get um, access to the nest material and to the bees themselves to, to start doing the kind of analytical method um, and analysis on uh, the material and the bees themselves. Um, so, yeah. How did you fund that early research? I used my house deposit, much to the um, dismay of <laughs> friends and family. Um, but I was just uh, consumed by curiosity uh, and, 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 and the scope and scale of the problem and the, and the potential size of the prize if we were able to, to work it out. Did you find it hard to get external funding initially for your idea when you first set up the company? Um, yeah, very, because the Humblebee, as far as I know, is the only biotech um, company in New Zealand that has not been spun out of a university. So this was not my my master's or my PhD project. This was a, a thing that I did on the side of my master's in science communication and filmmaking um, and on the side of my um, my full-time jobs because you couldn't, you can't get funding um, from government agencies um, through universities because um, they, they funnel them through universities, like so pre-seed accelerator funding and KiwiNet funding and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it relies heavily on angel investors if you're a, if you're um, not spun out of a university. So it was incredibly difficult. And when I was talking to to people from the US about this, they were like, you know, why are you taking um, VC funding so early? Um, surely there are grants available. And they're just, there aren't for deep tech, um, kind of fast fail exploratory stuff. There are no grants. Everything has to be matched by um, a, a venture firm unless you're at a university. So it was incredibly challenging. Um, and I didn't know that at the time. I just remember didn't know how difficult not doing it through university was going to be, but I did just look at the university's 
terms and think that doesn't seem like a very good deal. So um, paid for it myself um, initially. So um, what have you been able to prove and where are you at with commercialising it? Yeah, so uh, when we, we use the technology readiness level um, scale, which is, um, if you're not familiar with it, it's one that was developed in the space race um, by NASA to describe the kind of discrete um, movements towards a commercial product or a product that was ready for launch. Um, and so one is, you know, an idea and nine is a fully supported product in the market able to scale to meet your um, to meet your customers' demands. And we are at a four-ish um, now. So that means that we've got kind of technical proof of concept, um, but there's still more to do in terms of our ability to um, get a, um, a, a repeatable and consistent volume of product um, for a market and have it um, proven in, in the market environment. And So, so you're, the, you're the, kind of running it really as a virtual company almost, aren't, aren't you? Yeah, we are. And that was um, very beneficial when COVID hit. Uh, because some of some of the labs were you know were completely closed and others were able to keep going uh there's the supply chain issues with regard to kind of access to consumables that are required to run experiments was, were challenging um but you know everyone there everyone was in the same boat with regard to to that so have you has there been a point you know as an entrepreneur where you felt oh this is just too hard um, particularly given new zealand's ge laws i mean yes there has been been multiple points where I've gone this is way too hard and um you know putting putting my own money into it was was incredibly difficult um and then kind of early partnerships that that didn't work out and took a huge amount of time to kind of resolve and um then you know not having access to funding because we weren't spun out of a university and then to get spun out of a university, the university kind of clipping the ticket on the equity that was coming on the on the on the money that was coming in from non-dilutive sources. So it wasn't actually non-dilutive. It just and then also like just crazy things that went wrong. Like our lab burnt down and like the bee nest got delivered to the wrong lab and like they just went missing for weeks. And I was ringing every post office in the country going, Have you seen some bee nest? Have they shown up? And um so yeah, and and yeah, there are a lot of there are a lot of horror stories that made me question um, my life choices. But at the same time, the the mission and the reason why I'm doing this hasn't changed, and it's just getting more and more pressing and urgent. And I remember um, when we were raising last year, and I spoke to um, one of our investors, and he said, when you first pitched I remember thinking plastic pollution at this scale and the kind of problems that you're you're talking about are kind of niche and how you are planning on making this using synthetic biology and, um, and genetic engineering is kind of science fiction and now and 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 then we laughed about that because within a year I think plastic pollution had you know, rocketed onto the, the the top five things that New Zealand was concerned about, and there are now in like entire government funds and VC funds specifically in in synthetic biology. And so, I could see way back when because of what I, what I could the data from um, my undergrad, the writing was on the wall, and it's just taken a long time for um, for it to become very mainstream. And and so when things are really really difficult, I just I keep looking back at the, the leading indicators from a technological, regulatory, consumer need, health, um, and, and and it keeps me going. What markets yeah. are you targeting? And, and you know, you, you talked about the scale and being perhaps halfway there. How soon mm. do you think you, you can be hitting those markets? It's, uh, you know that saying, never work with, if you're in movies, never work with children and animals. So in, in biotech, you know, you're working with you're working with bacteria, you're working with fungi to scale your product, and and the the kind of wild thing about this um, this bee and and the gene that codes for the nest material is it's never been seen before. We're making something that is truly novel, which means it's very difficult to do. Uh, so I don't it's 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 years, it's not months, but it's not 
it's not decades you know it's we we want to be able to get it to a scale that is meaningful um to solve some of these pollution problems which are vast uh so we don't we're not tinkering in the kind of um hundreds of kilogram scale we want to be able to make it in tons so we we and we expect to be able to get there um by standing on the shoulders of giants who have have collectively spent many billions of dollars um laying the technological foundation for the um for the kind of um technology and, and manufacturing that is required to scale this product. So do you think, Veronica, that um, you mentioned being sort of halfway there, do you think the second half is going to be easier than the first half? Was that hard to tell? They say it is. Uh, they say it gets, um, the challenges are different and the scale of the problems are different and the the kind of the weight of the decisions is is different. Uh, but it does it gets easier because you're you're more resourced and you're more experienced and you're now kind of more you're able to compare yourself to others and make make decisions um not in isolation uh in a way that early on when you're when it's just you uh and you don't quite know where you fit then it's very very lonely uh and so I think in that way it'll get easier, um, but in other ways it'll it'll get more challenging. And but I I mean that is the reason I think I'm an entrepreneur is that I, I thrive on challenges and I thrive on learning. I like I like the steep learning curve. In fact, the kind of one or two times where I tried to have a normal job, um, that didn't pan out, and and it was because I just wasn't being challenged and I wasn't learning at the at, at the um at the pace that that I wanted to be. All right. Well, thanks for your time, Veronica Stevenson. My pleasure. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. The Employers and Manufacturers Association has had a noticeable increase in businesses looking to restructure and make redundancies. To explain more, EMA's Head of Legal and General Counsel, Paul O'Neill, is with us. So, Paul, who's calling you and why? Well, look, I think it is the economic conditions that we're all facing. And I suppose it's a range of businesses. It's not just um, small businesses that you might expect to have, uh, I suppose, less margin for error when it comes to difficult economic times. We're having a whole range, small, medium and large businesses, not necessarily entering into redundancy or restructuring processes immediately, but certainly reaching out to us for advice about what they would do or what they should do if they did go down that path. So there's, there's we've gone from sort of initial intent of inquiries to some more solid inquiries and unfortunately some actual redundancy and restructuring processes as well but it's across the board so are they looking to make wholesale changes close down or just tinker around the edges of their businesses Look, it, it's a bit of both, I suppose. Some smaller operations, um, particularly in the hospitality space, the construction space, they are having to shut down operations. So we're seeing that. Um, larger businesses, I suppose they're just looking at their costs, um, looking at their, uh, I suppose, their headcount and just seeing whether that's sustainable. So that's more, um, not so much trimming around the edges, but just streamlining their business just in response to what they think is going to be difficult economic times ahead. Yeah, what are the reasons they're giving for slimming down? Oh, it's a multitude of things, really. I mean, what we had, I suppose, was the extraordinary conditions of COVID. We had a couple of years of um, really tough times for businesses, um, supported uh, by by government relief programs. But in some ways, that sort of artificial support and the sugar hit of COVID um, relief has, has now gone away and left some businesses really struggling. Um, for some, the straw that broke the camel's back on the back of those um, uh, COVID restrictions was the flood um, that we had in Auckland and then Cyclone Gabriel that we saw affect throughout uh, throughout the North Island. So those those are sort of those, those seminal unpredictable events. Um, alongside that, uh, we've had, I suppose, economically really difficult times. We talk about the cost of living, but that also translates to a cost of doing business. So it is more expensive to run a business now than it was a year ago and significantly more expensive than it was two or three years ago. So that inflation really applies to businesses um, and that's having having a huge impact. 
Um, I'd also say there's, there's a fair bit of legislative burden as well on businesses at the moment. So the amount of uh, compliance work that they have to do to operate a business is, is more than ever. And it's not one single thing, but it's the cumulative effect of, of employers and businesses, um, I suppose, having this legislative burden and compliance um, put upon them at a time where, where they're already really struggling. So th there's a whole bunch of tipping points there, I suppose, um, and cumulatively taken together, it, it adds up to pretty tough times. And the OCR hikes to date take time to feed through into the economy. So we could be seeing more businesses shut up shop later this year into next year. Yeah, look, look, that's right. And look, we've got some incredibly resilient businesses out there. We've got businesses with good plans and good recovery options. Um, but there's no doubt that it'll be a very difficult time over the next few months. Um, and that, as you say, some of those interest rate rises, some of the legislative changes, and also just the supply chain issues we see from such macro level issues like the Russia-Ukraine war, they take a while to filter through and they also take a while to go away. So um, we've got some, some great, hardworking, resilient businesses out there in New Zealand, but they're really being tested at the moment. And you mentioned before about location, but are you specifically seeing businesses close in the Hawke's Bay in Gisborne where the cyclone has swept through? At this stage, we're seeing inquiries from those businesses about how they might, I suppose, uh, trim their costs and streamline their businesses. And, and yeah, it's been in flood affected areas, but I wouldn't confine it just to that. Even throughout Auckland, we're in places where um, they haven't, you wouldn't necessarily think that the direct impact of things like floods and cyclones uh, would have really hit. It's economic times. And also you've got to remember, um, it's not just your business, your customers. If your customers are hit and they're having to tighten their belts, it has a knock-on effect to you. So some Auckland uh, businesses rely on, on suppliers um, from the Hawke's Bay and Napier. So that, that knock-on effect and that chain reaction, I suppose, is very real. How do you compare this to previous years? Look, I think obviously tough economic times are cyclical and we're used to having, I suppose, markets may suffer and you may have different economic indicators may head south in terms of business confidence. But this is a pretty unique situation, I think, because we haven't had an economic recession on the back of COVID, on the back of natural disasters. And also we're in this sort of unique space at the moment whereby the cost of living, the cost of business is high, but equally unemployment is still relatively low. Uh, and there are real skill shortage issues. So in terms of getting the staff in, and you, you might have noticed that yourself, you go to a restaurant, you go to a business, there'll be signs up saying, you know, need need help, need staff. That's a really odd thing to see in the context of what we are now is, is technically in a recession. So it's this odd sort of mix of a uh, uh, a lack of, of labour to fill, fill gaps that businesses desperately need, so a real skill shortage at the same time as, as we're technically in a recession. So there's a few things there that make it a little bit unique and a little bit different to the usual cyclical downturn that you might experience. Can you walk me through the sort of advice you're giving businesses when they call you? What are you telling them to do? Look, I suppose it's about options, really, Jonathan, in that um, each business is different um, and the context is different. So, you know, our role at the EMA is to support businesses and, and, and give them some choices, give them some options. And ideally, we want to be able to help businesses work their way through this without, you know, with minimal change or minimal disruption. But depending on the context we've got, sometimes that's just unavoidable. The important thing from our point of view is that the process that they go through um, is appropriate and transparent and, and the engagement they're having with staff who might be affected around this sort of um, events is appropriate in the sense that we talk about economic indicators and, and um, graphs going up and down. What, what we've got to remember is behind all of this are people. So real people are affected with real jobs, with bills to pay, um, with families to look after. So um, it's really important to have a human face to these types of processes. Um, real people are being affected in a genuine way. So the process from an employer or a business side needs to be similarly appropriate and human and reflective of the, of the fact that the impacts of this are real and they're not just on balance sheets, that they're on people. So by the sounds of it, you're expecting the unemployment rate to increase this year? 
look, I, I, obviously, I'm not an economist. You could probably make a lot of money if you could predict these things with absolute certainty. But look, I would expect so. It would be, it would be difficult to see how a recession that seems to be heading in a deepening direction would result in anything other than higher unemployment figures. And, and the reality is if businesses, even if they don't get down the redundancy or restructuring path, if they are narrowing their focus and streamlining their operations, um, it's likely to mean that uh, yeah, people's people's roles uh, come under pressure and that unemployment will rise. I think that's that's probably inevitable. Um, but as I say, we've had a lot of shocks and surprises economically, politically, geopolitically. Um, so um, th there are some unpredictable elements, but that I would say is a very likely outcome. And you're on the road a lot. You're speaking to businesses around the country. What's the mood out there? The mood is, it's, yeah, you're right, I've just come back from a, a briefing series. We go around our members through the regions, through the North Island, so places like um, Whakatane and Rotorua, Taupo, uh, uh, Thames, and those places. And look, they, they've had a really tough time um, recently, and I suppose the... I suppose the climate at the moment is one of uncertainty. Um, they're, they're unsure as to where the economy will go, politically where New Zealand's heading. An election year always creates a little bit of uncertainty because you have the major political parties on both sides um, you know, making promises that they're going to do X, Y and Z. Um, and you know, that's a valid political process, but it's difficult if you're a business um, sitting there listening to it, trying to adjust your settings and adapt your business to a pretty unpredictable outcome. And at the moment, the election's too close to call and that type of uncertainty, I suppose, means that if, if someone's looking there saying, is this the right time to invest in my business? Um, is this the right time to grow my business, hire more people? Economically, politically, um, we're in a really uncertain time. So people just aren't sure, I suppose, what the right move is to make. So, yeah, I think uncertainty is the abiding mood at the moment out there in the regions. Paul O'Neill, thanks for your time. Pleasure. Thanks, Jonathan. Ahead of this year's election, the National Party is climbing into the area of employment law. It's Workplace Relations and Safety Minister Paul Goldsmith telling a select committee last week that the government is too focused on fair pay agreements and not enough on problems with the Holidays Act. I'm joined by Tompkins Weight partner Daniel Erickson. Daniel, thanks for coming along. No worries. Why don't we just start with some of these issues that you may be hearing from employers about the Holidays Act and what people are running into at the moment? I think one thing we probably need to bear in mind a bit is that these aren't necessarily new issues. I mean, mm -hmm. the, the Holidays Act has been problematic for for, for a number of years. And I think in, in, in simple terms, it's a piece of legislation that if you're working regular hours and regular days every week, it would work pretty well. Yep. Um, but given the reality of the modern workplace, it's, it's probably no longer fit for purpose because we've got so many people working uh, variable hours, shift patterns, you know, the, the, the gig economy, people working... Uh, in different, you know, time zones potentially, it, mm. it, it, it's just become a little bit problematic. So does that just make it hard for employers to to calculate leave owing and stuff like that? Or yeah, that, it... yeah, that's basically it in a yeah. nutshell. I mean, it, it it works. I mean, annual holidays, for example, are calculated on the basis of a week. You know, the Act says you get four weeks every yeah. every year yeah. as a minimum. Yeah. But what's a week? You know, if you're working variable hours from week to week, it can be difficult to figure out what that is. So it, the problem becomes when you start accruing annual leave, the Act says weeks, what's a week? Most payroll systems will tend to accrue uh, using a formula based on hours or days or something different. So there's a bit of a mis mismatch between mm -hmm. how it's being accrued in practice and what the entitlements may be. What sort of impact do public holidays have as well? Because obviously we've had a few new ones introduced. We've got another one coming up, what, next month as yeah, well? Yeah, that's it? right. And one of, the, one of the things for a, a public holiday is if, you know, if, is deciding whether or not it falls on a day that would otherwise be a working day for mm. the employee. So, if, again, if you've got variable work patterns and the days that you work jump around from week to week, how do you figure out if, you know, many public holidays are on a Monday? How do you figure out Monday as a usual working day if you, for example, work in retail and you work different shifts from week to week? Okay, okay. So, as you said at the start, it's not necessarily a new issue. Mm. Employers have been grappling with this stuff for a while, but 
maybe coming to the head at the moment, or more recently, there was meant to be a new bill this year, is that right? Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, there was a, a few years ago, there was a working group established which contained union representatives, uh, business representatives, and in, in late 2019, they presented you know, a number of recommendations for how the Holidays Act could be improved. And that was looking at things like how do we accrue annual leave? You know, is there a better way to do it rather than the weeks? Um, can we use a, a formula that employers and employees can agree on as a method of accruing that fits with their workplace? So there are all sorts of recommendations. There were some recommendations around some enhancements, including you know things like sick leave and bereavement leave accruing from day one of employment rather than having to wait for six months. Um, you know the government did announce in February 2021. The government did announce they would be adopting all of the recommendations uh, from this uh, from this working group, and it was expected that there'd be uh, new legislation introduced to Parliament this year. And um, obviously, uh, you know, with the election rapidly approaching, it, you know, it seems unlikely that that's going to happen. So this is, you know, perhaps why we have you know, the National Party at this point saying, well, well, where is it? Mm. Where is the action on this? You've gone through with fair pay agreements and that mechanism's now in place. So why has this been uh, left on the back burner? Do you think the focus has just been all on these fair pay agreements and that's why it's fallen away or...? I think just in general, I mean, I think we've seen with the government in recent months, they've really just slimmed down what they're looking at and, and focusing on, on, you know, what they see as more important cost of living issues, perhaps. I mean, I, I don't know, but, mm. you know, perhaps it's just fallen victim to uh, their desire just to slim down their program and, and keep things simple. So uh, the government did say it sort of would adopt the recommendations. Mm -hmm. What was your view of those recommendations? Were they, would they go far enough to, to fix some of these issues that we're seeing with the Act? Look, think? I, I think in theory they would go some way to fixing some of the problems. I mean, often, though, the devil's in the detail and mm -hmm. how it would actually look once. I mean, we, as, as, you know, as clear, we haven't actually seen the legislation. So whether or not that would address the issues. I mean, it was certainly looking like steps in the right direction. Um, and look, it remains to be seen whether... If, you know, post-election, if it's a Labour government, will they proceed? If it's a national government, you know, will they adopt those recommendations or otherwise? You know, I think that all remains to be seen. And how high on the agenda do you think this is for some of your clients as well? Is this is this something they really would like to get sorted pretty quickly? Sometimes there's almost a sense of resignation that it's right. just a, pro a problem, and and you know you you occasionally have issues that that come to the come to the head and you have to deal with it. I mean, I think in general terms, absolutely, employers would like to see this tidied up. Um, whether it's a hot button issue right now. You know, I, I don't think so, but you know, it's always something that's bubbling away in the background and does cause some frustration. Daniel, thanks very much for your time. No worries, thank you. Ankita Dakar is the founder of Hamilton based cybersecurity consultancy Security Lit and has recently started a new venture called Capture the Bug, which aims to democratise cyber protection using a novel crowdsourcing idea for identifying system vulnerabilities. Kia ora, Ankita. Kia ora. So tell me, what is Capture the Bug? Capture the Bug is a crowdsourced community-powered security testing platform. Uh, we connect businesses with the global community of security researchers, bug bounty hunters, penetration testers, to uncover security vulnerabilities that traditional solutions miss. Okay. What's a bug bounty? Bug bounty. So... Um, you know what bugs are, right? So weaknesses mm -hmm. and bounties is the reward. So we basically say, hey, if you find a vulnerability in our application, we in, in so if you re, if you report a vulnerability in an application, mm -hmm. we will reward you for finding that vulnerability. So mm -hmm. that is bug bounties. Okay, and these bug bounties go out to people in the in the cybersecurity community who are basically sort of freelance, able to to look at these these um, bugs. So they could be pen testers. Um, they could be security researchers. They could be um, these are different names for basically same sort of um, people with um, um, skill sets. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, we. Uh, at, at the moment, we have a community of 1,000 security researchers mm. um, from five countries, Europe, New Zealand, India, and Australia. Um, and, you know, the, these are people who've worked in um, cybersecurity as pen testers, um, you know, ethical hackers. They mm. do freelancing. Some, Most of them are actually working full-time as pen testers, and this is more like a side gig for them. Okay. Yeah. And so the bug bounties aren't 
a new thing in the market, um, mm-hmm. but just the way that you're going about sort of connecting the the testers, the researchers with your clients is, is the new thing, right? It is. Um, so crowdsourcing has been um, has been used by um, majority of tech giants like Google, Microsoft, and you know recently OpenAI, mm-hmm. um, but it hasn't been available to. Uh, you know, SMEs, the more small to medium-sized businesses. So we're we're taking the success of crowdsourcing and making it available to everyone. Okay. Yeah. And yeah, so there's much more vulnerabilities, or there's a need for SMEs mm-hmm. because they're much more online these days. Um, there's more vulnerabilities within SMEs, right? So, yep. is, do you feel like that that community is underserved? It, it is. And um, so, for example, at the moment, SMEs are using traditional pen testing firms, right? Um, and and these, these, these tests cost them anywhere between 20 to 50K, depending on the, the complexity, the, you know, the tax surface that they have. Um, and not every business has that sort of money. Uh, so what we're saying is um, for the same amount uh, of um, that, that you're spending on pen testing, uh, you know, spending it on vulnerability disclosure and bug bounties would give you uh, more return. Mm. Um, it's giving you, you know, 24-7 monitoring of your assets. And it's also a, a good way of protecting your assets because, so for example, if you're due for a, a major product release, um, but your pen test is due in another five months, you would still wait for that, right? Mm. But they could, they, there is a there is a chance that there is a vulnerability that's sitting in that application, but you wouldn't find out um, until you've had that pen test. Sure. So, and not every organization is spending every time they do the release for the pen. They're only doing it, say, once or twice a year. That's that's not enough. Yeah. Um, I think agile development demands agile security. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, I was going to ask how often a typical company would do a penetration test but you're saying a yeah, couple times a year or so twice a year mm. depending on you know organizations okay. yeah but this is sort of more on demand um through capture the bug yes this is more like um you come onto a platform you mm. you know um, host your asset on onto a platform and then you invite the researchers to look for vulnerabilities. Okay. Um, so you basically, uh, it's an impact-driven model. You're paying for the, the, the bugs that they've discovered and not for the time that they're, they're spending on looking for those vulnerabilities. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. So um, it might be a bit vulnerable of these businesses, to, sorry to use the pun, but um, <laughs> to put themselves on, on, the, on the platform. I yep. mean, how do you sort of guarantee that the people who are um, uh, at the other end, the researchers, the, the pen testers, are ethical and doing this for the right reasons? Yeah, I, I love this question, and uh, I always get asked this question, and I love this. Um, so, so for example, if I, I'm not a pen tester, right? But tomorrow, uh, if I want to become a bug bounty hunter on a, on a pl- platform like this, um, a lot of question uh, people ask me this question: What happens if the, if a researcher um, goes rogue, you know, or an ethical hacker becomes, um, you know, a, a, a black hat? Mm-hmm. Um, the chances of happening that is really really low. Um, it, it's because these people have been um, have have earned a reputation of defending, um, uh, you know, and they are the defenders. Um, they've 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 been working in the community and and as you know, pen testers um, in the industry for quite some time. So um, doing something like that, they would be risking their profile and their their past achievements. So that's that's really really low. Uh, we we're using a third party um, uh, vendor that uh, goes through. So for example, if we have a researcher that's based in India. Um, they would, uh, you know, they would work with our third-party vendor. Um, they would do their ID, verif- uh, ID verification, background checks, making sure that they don't have any, um, you know, criminal record. Um, their, their background is really clean before they sign up. Um, additionally, we also have our own um, code of conduct that they have to agree to. We have our terms and conditions. Um, we have disclosure policies that they have to agree to before they actually register onto a platform. So it's um, when it comes to crowdsourcing. We're not just giving access to anyone. Mm-hmm. We basically know who these people are. We make sure that these people are um, the people with good intent and want to protect your assets. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So you mentioned the disclosure um, sort of regime. As a lot of businesses will just have that open channel for researchers to 
to yeah i mean they they're only looking at the the publicly facing assets right mm-hmm. so they're not you're not giving access to your internal yeah. assets and this is anyway public mm-hmm. so for example tomorrow a bad actor wants to exploit you they would do it what we're doing what we're saying is give the good people an opportunity mm-hmm. um and they will tell you that there is a vulnerability in your application before a bad actor is exploited okay yeah yeah um Well, you sort of mentioned it there. I was going to ask you about the, sort of the, the gap in the market, the unique proposition that you have. Uh, you've talked about the big players, Google and, and, mm-hmm. and others, do use crowdsourcing. Um, how, how, how do you see this um, sort of scaling up in this market um, in terms of your, your business model versus other, other larger players? Um, so I'll give you an example of a, a pilot that we did um, um, last year when we didn't, we didn't have the product ready. um but we were working with an organization so we manage their bug bounty program and it's a it's a 400 people organization based in india big enterprise um and we manage their program we received during 3 months of um managing their program we received 186 vulnerabilities just through their program uh, managing their program mm. and out of those 186 26 were critical vulnerabilities now imagine if just one bug could have been exploited by a bad actor mm-hmm. they would be you know paying um you know it, it would could have been led to a data breach or you know confidential records being stolen and and what not and uh, nobody wants to be in that situation right we've mm-hmm. we've seen what happened with optus and medibank um so yeah we what we're doing is very uh different to what businesses are used to in new zealand um so if you want to go through a pen test you would um engage with a you know a uh, pen testing firm um but they for SMEs if they want a protection for 24/7 or you know throughout the year um they can't just every time they can't just go and you know buy a pen test mm. also it's it's even if you if you have the budget they are employing the same people every time and mm. they're using the same methodology the skill same skill set so our our platform is um is uh, it's different in a way that we're saying more people looking at your asset means you know less chance of um mm. finding a vulnerability mm. so that's that's what makes us different okay more diversity amongst the people yeah. who are yeah. testing oh, that's interesting um what actually happens when a vulnerability is found or a bug is found yeah so for example uh if it's through a disclosure program uh there's a secure channel so you sign up on our platform um you launch a disclosure program uh once it's launched we notify our researchers depending on what sort of program it is so for example if it's a vulnerability disclosure program it's mostly public because the business is not giving any bounties um so it's a public program so we will notify our researchers that hey xyz company has launched this program look for vulnerabilities mm-hmm. and if someone finds a vulnerability then it go it comes to us first we make sure that it's a valid vulnerability um and if we if we see it as a valid um bug then we pass it on to the company and then um they receive all the um the fixes the remediations um the impact of that vulnerability and mm. then they they patch it and we assist them throughout the process okay but it's they they have access to a dashboard um they can see in real time the bugs that are coming in so it's it's different to traditional pen testing where it takes weeks to launch a program and um yeah you're using the same skill set and the people mm. and there's also a huge skill shortage right now yeah in new zealand yeah yeah so i hear but in terms of the the fix um you you can offer that services with through security let or they can go to obviously an external provider no, no we uh, that's part of capture the bug capture, uh, yeah capture the yeah we would okay. we would uh, so if 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 a vulnerability has been found we mm. will assist the business um to make sure that that is patched uh, within as as quickly as possible mm. and mm. we would provide provide that support okay well, you sort of mentioned how um i suppose low cost the model is the the impact um model uh so they only pay for what impact mm-hmm. that is 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 experienced but in terms of your internal sort of business and your your costs it must be fairly low cost as well yeah. um you know how how are you that sort of leads me on to i suppose the 
the capital raise that you're looking to do and how you might spend uh, the, the capital that you're looking to, to raise? Yeah, so um, our model is, so we're not employing um, these people, mm. uh, but of course these people have to agree to our terms and conditions. You know, we sign NDAs with them. Um, there are disclosure policies and code of ethics in place that they have to um, agree to before they come onto a platform as a researcher. Um, and uh, currently we're raising 1.5 million uh, New Zealand dollars. Um, that would help us to bring uh, our developers um, full-time on board. Then um, we're also working on making a vulnerability scanner for all the businesses that they could use um, free of cost. Um, yeah, so we would be using the money to, um, you know, grow the community. Mm. Um, at the moment, I think there is a community that's in New Zealand, but that's sleeping. So we, we want to, you know, uh, engage with that community, make sure that we're organizing conferences and supporting the ethical hackers that are based in New Zealand. And then, of course, growing our community worldwide. So at the moment, we have 1,000 researchers. We want to grow um, the team. Um, mm. We also want to offer our... Um, you know, uh, our platform not just for bug bounty and disclosure programs, but for also pen testing as a service. So people can come onto our platform. Um, they can just on one click should be able to you know um, buy a pen test mm. rather than engaging and going through weeks of um, yeah waiting period through consultancies. Okay, in, in terms of your um, I suppose your staffing your your workforce um, at the moment just for capture the bug what what are your numbers like or is it uh we're, we're a team of 10 people okay. um uh, mostly based in hamilton but mm. we do have people in asia pacific as well um part of the team we've got um dr vimal kumar um uh, he's he's our advisor also a shareholder um he's the um head of ProLab, which is uh, cybersecurity researchers of Waikato. That's the only cybersecurity lab that we have in New Zealand. Mm -hmm. um, he's also a senior lecturer at the University of Waikato. Um, we also have uh, Mike Jenkins, who was the founder of uh, Instillery, um, and he's also a shareholder. And I've got me. I'm the I'm the founder and CEO, and uh, my my husband. Uh, he's um, uh, the chief operating officer. Yeah, okay. so we four five shareholders. Um, our CTO is actually based in India. Okay. Yeah. Okay, but is that that's similar to the security lit kind of executive team, right? So uh, are they sort so of so it's married? from security lit team. Yeah. It's just me and my husband, yeah. and then we've got of course, ah, okay. yeah. Okay. Um, now you did uh, an entrepreneur interview with NBR um, maybe eighteen months ago, and yeah. I, I was listening to it this morning. And, and you sort of mentioned how difficult it was to get people to take you seriously. Um, uh, you, you mentioned just before you went on air that you don't have sort of formal qualifications as a, as a cybersecurity or a technical person. So I'm just wondering how how far you've come in that eighteen months in terms of um, building your profile and 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 getting people to take you seriously. I think it's uh, it's. It's it's it. I think it's not just do with my background, but it's also my culture. So, f um, as an immigrant, it's really really hard to find your place in a new country. Um, so when I came to New Zealand in 2015, I came here to study, um, and then I worked um, as customer service, and you know I've also worked in real estate for for some time. Um, but yeah, when I started my business without having that certification, that you know traditional um, IT uh, bachelor's degree that I didn't have. It it was kind of hard for people to take me seriously, but I think um, it's it's just a perception. Some people really appreciate that the the time that I've invested into my own research, and uh, you know, I I always I, I I'm I'm really proud that I've learned so much. Like the, this the this platform I wouldn't have built it without the the research and the time that I've spent and in studying. Um, you know the crowdsourcing model that's that has been around um, for ten years now overseas, um, but something that's missing in New Zealand and Australia. Um, so yeah, I, I think with time and then as we grow, um, capture the bug, people should try start taking me seriously. Mm, yeah. Um, and in terms of profitability, I know you're very. It's still a very young company. Or, or sort of revenues. Can you give me a sense of what what you're doing? Uh, yeah. So we recently um, uh, got someone. So it's a U.S.-based company, uh, Rafe. Uh, they are leading Kubernetes uh, platform in the U.S. So they they're using us for um, pen testing as a service. Um, we've got, um, I think, 
two or three um, New Zealand-based businesses, mm. SaaS platforms, uh, again, um, using us for disclosure programs uh, and also pen testing. So yeah, I, I, I can say by end of next month, we should have around 30K in revenue, yeah. And that's been this week's People in Business. Thanks for listening. If you're hungry for more and want to join the discussion, head over to nbr.co.nz. Thank you.